So if you, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the, the book of Luke um, in chapter 4. And uh, for those of you who have been around recently, we've been working our way through uh, this, this gospel. The you know, gospels are, there's four of them in the New Testament, and there are these uh, biographies of the, the life and, and ministry of Jesus, especially centering on his three years of ministry before his death and resurrection. And today is actually, you know, it's an exciting day in, in our, our walk through, through Luke, um, because if you were to look at an outline of the entire book of Luke, we're actually just entering a major section. So uh, chapters one and two, it's the birth narrative, the, the Christmas stories. And then chapters three, verse one to four, verse 15 is Jesus' preparation for ministry. So we looked at his temptation, his baptism, the ministry of, of John the Baptist. But, but starting today in um, chapter Four, verse 16. We're, we're in a section that's going to go all the way to chapter 9, verse 50. And so this is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And, and then eventually he's going to begin, you know, at, starting in chapter 9, begin his journey to Jerusalem to then face crucifixion and death for, for people who were rejecting him, for, for you and for me. And so with that in mind, uh, we will begin reading today. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll start back in verse uh, 14. I read the, those two verses at the end of um, last week, but it gives the context for this ministry in Galilee. So again, this is Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned from his temptation in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, 
all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. The cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this insight, this window into the beginning of Christ's ministry, even in his own hometown. Lord, we, we pray that you would use this to help us respond to him in, in the way that, that is pleasing to you, Lord, that we wouldn't respond by rejecting him, by turning away from him, but we would respond in, in faith and in love. So, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it, just in, when we're going through the, the daily walk of life, we're always having to make decisions in lots of different moments. And especially for people who have really complicated decisions to make, sometimes they have to have spreadsheets or checklists. You think of, of pilots who can have complicated checklists because they're making decisions that they don't want to probably rely on their own intuition or just their own head, so they, they have to have, okay, we're going down this list to make sure we make the right decisions in the right moments. But when we, we come to the person of Jesus, in some ways it, the, the checklist is, is very simple. The, the decision is, is very clear because really there are, there are two options in last analysis to, to Jesus. We can accept him or we can reject him. Those are really the two options that we can say, yes, you're, you're the Lord, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah, or we can say, no, I don't think that there is anything here. We're going to look for hope and life elsewhere. And what we see today in this passage, in this beginning of Christ's ministry in uh, Galilee, is his rejection, rejection in, in his hometown. And it, it really shows this dichotomy. Are we going to accept him? Are we going to reject him? And I think that it, it really challenges us, each one of us, to consider that. How are we responding to Jesus when we confront him in his word. And so to, to walk through this section by section, we're going to just ask the three questions. Who rejected Jesus? Why did they reject him? And then how did they reject him? So let's start with the, the first question of, of who rejected Jesus? And, and it's pretty clear if you look at verse 16 again in your Bible. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so this is taking place in, in Nazareth. It's his hometown. It's the, the place where he was raised for the most part. He, he lived for a little while in Egypt while his family was in exile because of the persecution of, of Herod, of, of children in Bethlehem. But, but for the most part, this is, you, you ask Jesus, where are you from? He would say, I'm from Nazareth. And uh, it would be similar to me if people say, where are you from? I say, I'm from Silverton, Colorado, in southwest Colorado, a small little town, because that's where the people knew my parents. Before they had me, it's where people knew me. As a child, that's the way Nazareth was for, for Jesus. So this is a place where there were probably a lot of friends, family friends, probably even a lot of relatives, distant cousins, third cousins. The, these are the people, remember, in the 
the story we looked at where Jesus as a 12-year-old was in Jerusalem traveling back to Nazareth, and they thought he was maybe with some of the other kids playing. These are the people that he was playing with, that he was traveling back to Nazareth with for the most part. But also, we see that this is taking place in the synagogue. It says that, that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue for worship. It shows his commitment to the, the ordinances of God as a faithful Jew. And so the, the people sitting in that synagogue were the, the, the good religious people, the people who were studying their Bibles, the people who are attending worship, the people who would be considered conservative, socially, religiously. And so in a way you might think, okay, these are probably the people who are going to respond in the right way to Jesus. These are the people of anyone who's going to accept him. There, there's his friends, his, his family, his uh, acquaintances. These are people who are in synagogue, people who are studying the Old Testament scriptures. But we read in the, the book of John, one of the other gospels, chapter one, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so his rejection that we see here, it starts this trajectory that's going to follow him for the rest of his ministry, that he's rejected first at his hometown, and then eventually he's going to be rejected by his entire nation, be rejected by the world, by humanity itself, be crucified and, and die. And this is the, the first step on that, that path. And I think that it, it, it should make us a little bit nervous as well, or make us be careful because the people rejecting Jesus here, as I said, they're, they're the people who, who grew up around him, the people who actually thought that they knew him the best. And I think that, that some, uh, probably even some here would say, yeah, I know, I know Jesus. I've grown up with Jesus. Maybe you grew up going to, to Mass, or you grew up going to a Christian school, or you grew up going to, to church. You, you say, yeah, my, my family's Christian, my most of my friends are, are Christian, and so, you know, the proverb says that familiarity breeds content. Uh, that, that sometimes, when, the more we're around something, the more we just assume we know what it is, but maybe we actually don't. And, and it's true with knowledge of Jesus or knowledge of Scripture that it can be a huge privilege to, to grow up hearing the Bible, studying the Bible, to be around people who believe but, but also, we're, we're handling really sacred things. And, and there's this truth that when we're, when we're approaching Scripture, when we're approaching Christ, it can soften our hearts, it can draw us closer to Him. But also, there are times where if, if we have a hard, unregenerate heart, um, then it can actually harden us. You think of the, the callus that builds up o over time. And this is where some of you could be today. You, you say, yeah, I know, I know what Jesus is about. I know what the Bible says. I know what Christianity says. And, and you, you think that you know enough to say that you don't want anything to do with, with Christianity. But sometimes they can actually function almost like a vaccine where you get just enough of the real thing to make you immune to its effect, but you've never actually experienced its power. You've never experienced its, its true effect in your life. Um, and, you know, that's a strange analogy. Um, but I think that there's truth of that spiritually, too, that, that, that somebody assumes that they, that they know what Jesus is about, but they've never actually experienced his work, his power, his, his grace, and his mercy in their life experientially. And so they're like the, the people here in Nazareth. So that's the, the first question, then, of, of who 
rejected Jesus, and it was the, the good religious people who thought they knew him already. But then the second question is, is why did these people, these religious people in Nazareth, reject Christ? And we see in the answer in verse 17, if you look there in your Bible, it says, that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, <coughs> to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, he comes in, as you see, into the, the synagogue. And he, he's following the normal pattern of, of worship. That, that often in, in synagogue worship, they would hear readings from the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They would sing songs, um, probably from the Psalms. And then they would also have readings from the prophets. And so uh, what seemed to have happened here was that the, the leader of the synagogue asked Jesus to read the, the passage from the prophets and to deliver a short sermon on it. And, and this would be a practice if somebody was visiting who was a teacher or was a rabbi. And so by this time, it, it was likely that people were hearing rumors. Okay, he's been in Capernaum. He's been teaching. He's, people are talking about he's the up-and-coming new teacher. And so we want to hear for him from him ourselves, that this is the... You know, the, the homeboy from Nazareth, we want to see what, what he's all about and what his teaching is. So it says that he stood up, and, and they would keep the scrolls of the Torah in a special box. Um, and they, So they would open the box, and it was a poor community in Nazareth. They, they may not have had the entire Old Testament. They, uh, they may have. But they, it says that they handed, they handed him the scroll to the prophet Isaiah. And so, you know, probably very, quite large. It's a, a long book, you know, scroll rolled up. And, and he unrolls it to what is chapter 61 in our Bible uh, of, of Isaiah. But it, it's interesting that, that scrolls at that time, Hebrew scrolls, they didn't have chapters, they didn't have verses, and they didn't have spaces between words. Um, <laughs> so it was just a string of, of consonants. Um, and, and so to then, you know, take the... 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. So he un he's able to unroll the scroll and to find the place um, that, that he wants to, to read from. So it shows his, his intimate knowledge of scriptures, how well he knew it, that he could find this specific spot. And so he, he reads from the scroll, and then he gives it back to the attendant, and it says that then he, he sat down. And that's confusing to us, and says the eyes of everyone, they're, they're fixed on him. But also, uh, it was when I teach, or when people teach usually today, they stand. Uh, but they had kind of the inverse in synagogue worship, where you would stand out of respect when you were reading scripture, but then you would sit to teach. And so, so he sits down, everybody's saying, all right, what is he going to say? There's a moment of silence before he begins teaching. And he may have said other words, because it does say in the text that he, he began to speak to them. But he says, Today, this, this text, this passage, has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
absolutely shocking thing to say after reading a passage of scripture. I mean, imagine if I did that, read a passage of scripture and said, I just fulfilled this passage just now while you're listening to me. <laughs> um, it would be a really hard thing to, to hear. So, so look back really quickly at what Jesus is claiming, because he's saying, I'm the one fulfilling what Isaiah is saying. So what actually is Isaiah claiming? Look at verse 18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so Jesus is saying, you know, in Isaiah, this, this person speaking in the first person who's the anointed, spirit-filled person who's coming to bring good news to the poor, that's, that's me. And then for people who actually knew the book of Isaiah, they would know that the person speaking in first person in chapter 61 is also the person that is talked about back in uh, chapter 53, the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord who's going to bear sin, pay uh, the penalty so that people can have life. And, and, and so he says, okay, this person is bringing good news to the poor. And then as the, the passage unfolds, he tells us what the poor is. Verse 18, the second part of that verse, it says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So you notice just all the parts of that. It, it's saying he's bringing liberty to the captives. So he's, he's saying, I'm going to release those who are held bondage and bondage and slavery. And that's probably, you know, it could be liber or, um, very literal release from slavery and bondage. But then there's also the spiritual dimension of He's, he's releasing people who are enslaved to, to sin or to, to death or people who are enslaved to, to fear that he's giving release from this bondage that we've inherited from our first parent, Adam. But then it also says that he came to give sight to the blind. Of course, you know, in the, the ministry of Jesus, he does literally restore the sight of the blind. But then also that, that restoration of physical sight speaks to also a deeper spiritual reality as well, that, that he restores the the blindness of the human condition. You know, we sing Amazing Grace that I, I once was blind, but now I see. And that, that's talking about this, that, that we, were, we were blind, where we couldn't see who we are, we couldn't see our own sin, we couldn't really see who God is, we couldn't see his glory, we couldn't really see who Jesus is, that he comes and, and he brings us from death to life, gives us spiritual sight, we can see Jesus, we can see who we are, we can trust in him, we can repent. But then also it, it says that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So there, Isaiah is drawing on this language from the earlier in Scripture. Um, Moses gave the people this year of jubilee where every 50 years there would be this release where, I mean, it would be something that's great. I wish that they, they would do this in modern society. All the debts are forgiven. <laughs> uh, all the land is returned. You know, just, it, it, would, it keeps people from being built up in debt slavery kind of like we see, we see now. And so this would, would happen periodically, just everything returns, everything is freed. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, you know, I'm coming as this anointed, spirit-led Messiah to bring this, this new spiritual year of jubilee, this year of release, to, to release all of the, the debt and, and the bondage and to set people free to serve the Lord. And so as you look at this then, this is a, just a beautiful picture of the, of the work of, of Jesus. You understand why Jesus would turn to this passage to describe his, his ministry. And it shows what good news Jesus is to each and every one of us. 
that if somebody feels enslaved, if somebody feels in, in bondage, whether that's to addiction or sin, to certain patterns that you feel like you can't break out of, that, that Jesus is saying, you know, I'm coming to bring freedom, I'm coming to bring liberty, to release the, the captives, to let us go from spiritual blindness. And that also means that, that we need to make sure that, that our life and our, the, is in line with this mission of Jesus. And we think about that even with, with Hope Church, that Jesus came to seek the blind and the poor and the lame and those who are on the outside. And again, that's not just talking materially, but spiritually. And that's the mission of Hope as well, to, to not just seek those who have it all together, but to recognize that on a very deep level, none of us do, that, that we exist for the, the poor, spiritually, physically, the, the blind, to bring liberty and joy and release to captives that is ours in Christ. But before we, we look, though, at how this began to lead to rejection of Jesus, though, I want you to notice one last thing from this quote from Isaiah. And to see this, actually, it's very interesting. You have to turn back to Isaiah. So if you, if you turn in your Bible back to Isaiah 61, and, and you'll notice the, the passage that Jesus is reading from, verse 1 and 2. And there, there are a few different, there's a different wording in small ways. That's just a difference between Greek and, and, and Hebrew, just translation decisions. But let me read this really quickly from this passage and, you know, be thinking, what's the difference between what Jesus says? It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So you say, okay, what's the, what's the big difference that you notice? And it's that, that very last phrase that you see there where, where Jesus ends his reading with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he leaves off the rest of the sentence, like literally dro drops the second half of the sentence in the day of the vengeance of our God. And you think, well, if people knew that, knew the scriptures, probably better than most of us knew the book of Isaiah listening, they would, they would pick up on it. Why is he, he doing that? Well, it's not that, that Jesus didn't believe in vengeance or he didn't believe in the wrath of God. <clears throat> but he's showing here this, this difference between the, the first and the, the second coming of, of Jesus. In other words, th what this is saying is that the, the first coming of Jesus, it's centering on, on liberty to the poor, uh, it's, it's focusing on sight to the blind, on this, this day of, of deliverance, this, this new year of Jubilee. But then... In Scripture, we read of the, the second coming of Jesus, that is the, the day when, he, when he'll come in his glory with the, the angels to um, judge the world, to, to uh, give life to those who are in Christ. But to, it says in Scripture to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And so it's interesting that when you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, sometimes it, it, it'll oscillate between what we would know as this, the first and the second coming of Jesus. 
And you can almost think about this like approaching a mountains. Uh, if you've ever been out west to Colorado, you know, sometimes you're driving through the desert, you're dri driving through plains, and you see this wall of mountains in front of you. And when you see that wall of mountains, it's hard to tell which mountain is in front, which is behind. You just see it as one reality. But then as you approach it and you climb up into the mountain passes, you see, okay, this one's in front of this one. There's vistas, there's valleys, and you see the contours of it. And, and that's the way that so much Old Testament prophecy is, where it, it looks at the work of Jesus as this wall of mountains. And, and it'll seamlessly almost oscillate between realities of the first, the second coming, the new heavens, the new earth. And what I realized that just reading the Old Testament prophets just comes alive because you see it. Um, that, 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 and that was one reason that religious authorities at the time had a hard time recognizing the work of Jesus because they didn't quite get this fact that so much of Jesus' work is already and not yet. It's, he's already fulfilling scripture, but yet he hasn't yet fully. And so we, even now we're sitting in that tension where he's, he has fulfilled stuff and he's yet to fulfill as well. And so what Jesus is showing then is this, this already not yet aspect where he's, he's saying, what is fulfilled today? <laughs> in the hearing, and it's, it's this, this liberty to the captives, it's, it's freedom, it's the, the sight to the blind, it's this year of jubilee, and yet the, the day of, of vengeance is, is yet to come. That, that day is not fulfilled in the hearing of the people back 2,000 years ago. But if you think about it, though, that's still this really outrageous claim of Jesus about himself. Because implicitly what he's saying is, I'm the one who's going to bring liberty and, and life to the world, and I'm also going to be the instrument of God's vengeance and justice on the last day that is yet to come. That's basically implicitly what he's, what he's showing. And, and just imagine if somebody you grew up with, somebody you were in school with, somebody you went to college with, suddenly came to you and said, by the way, I'm fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and I'm going to be the instrument of God's vengeance on the world on the last day. To, to you, you would say, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. So they were skeptical. And that's exactly the reaction that the people had in the synagogue as well. Could this person really be the Messiah? Could he really be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Could he really be the spirit-anointed Lord of Isaiah 61? Could he be the one who's going to be the instrument of, of God's both mercy, deliverance, but also judgment on the last day. It, and it, it felt too much, it was too much to believe and began to lead to the rejection that we'll talk more about in a minute. But in a way, I think I appreciate their intellectual honesty here in the synagogue, that they actually begin to see what Jesus is actually saying about himself. But I think sometimes we're, what we'll do is we'll patronized Jesus. We'll, we'll say, oh, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He's a good moral teacher. He said a lot of really just wonderful things. He's, he's just like any other prophet. He's just another Buddha, basically. Um, he, he says a lot of good stuff that we could put in you know, fortune cookies, but he's not necessarily the, the Lord of the universe. But the problem with that idea is that if, if you want to say that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then you basically have to ignore his good moral teachings. <laughs> because this is the introduction to the good moral teaching of Jesus. And he's, he's making outrageous claims about himself. He's claiming to be 
the Messiah. He's claiming to be the one who brings life, to be the one who brings um, judgment. It isn't something that a good moral teacher would say about himself. And that's why the, the great C.S. Lewis makes this famous point where he says, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's telling the truth, right? That if he knows he's not the Messiah, but he's telling people he is, then that makes him a terrible person, and he should be rejected and driven out of the synagogue. If he honestly thinks that he is the spirit-anointed Messiah of the Old Testament, but he's not, then he's kind of crazy. And again, maybe they don't drive him out or try to throw him off the cliff, but you still want to help the guy out and kind of get him out of the teaching seat. But if he actually is who he says he is, if, he, if it's actually true, the things he's saying, then what we have is not just a good moral teacher, not just somebody in Nazareth who you grew up with, but you have something far more, which is really terrifying to the human mind and it was, was to them. So that's our, our second question. Why was Jesus rejected? And he was re rejected because the claim just seemed too outrageous about himself. <clears throat> but now let's look at this, this third and, and final question. How did they reject him? How did they actually, once they saw what he was teaching, how, what was the process that they followed in their, in their rejection? And, and it's, it's interesting that they start off doing the very same thing that I was mentioning a second ago, that they, they would just say, oh yeah, Jesus, he, this great guy, he's from Nazareth, we know he's becoming a famous teacher. Um, look at what they say in, in verse 20. It says that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And so you see that this, this initial positive reaction. They, they're marveling. Wow, this guy, he has a lot to say. They, he has gracious words. He's, he's eloquent. He, and then you could almost then sense the, but wait, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> Uh, and and there, you could read it in either either way. It could be, oh, look at the gracious things, and wow, this is Joseph's son. But I almost think that there's a, almost a, a but. You know, wow, he's seeing these gracious things. But isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't weren't there stories about his mom having him out of wedlock? Weren't there? We know the, these people. We know Joseph wasn't perfect. I mean, he wasn't a great guy all the time. Are we, I mean, is this actually the, the Messiah? It couldn't be. We need, we need more proof. We need more evidence. And so Jesus senses what they're thinking. And look at what Jesus says in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless will you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And so Jesus acknowledges the fact that they, they know, hey, you've been doing really great things other places. Bring some of that home and show us so that we also can believe. And it's interesting, the other Gospels uh, that tell this rejection of Jesus say that, that he was unable to do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
And, and, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give you the proof that you want. I'm not going to give you the, the evidence that you're, that you're seeking. And actually, you're confirming a, a, a proverb that a prophet is not acceptable in his own, own community, his own hometown. It's that same thing that familiarity breeds contempt. And so then, as, as it, Jesus continues, instead of giving them the proof that they're seeking, he gives them an Old Testament lesson, <laughs> uh, which is, is <coughs> where he begins to turn from this anger, you know, from this admiration to anger. And so as you, you look at that, starting in, in verse 28 um, to, to verse 27, he, he moves through these stories from the Old Testament, and, and he reminds them of, of the prophet Elijah, Elijah. And he says that, well, Elijah, when he came as a prophet in the Old Testament, Israel rejected him. And what did God do? God sent him outside of the covenant people to minister to Gentile widows, even though there were many widows in Israel. And then he mentions the, the same pattern in the successor to Elijah. And he says, same thing with Elisha, that, that there were many people with skin disease, many lepers in Israel. But who was healed by the prophet? It was the Gentile. It was the person outside of the covenant. And because Israel was rejecting the prophet that had been sent to them. And so Jesus is laying out this, this pattern throughout the history of God's people, that, that the people who think of themselves as the good, religious, moral people, those are the ones who so often reject the prophets that God sends to them. They don't accept them. And, and in that moment, what God does is he sends the prophet to people outside of the fold, the people who are viewed as outsiders, the people who are viewed as the, the bad people. And God shows his sovereign mercy and grace to those who are on the outside. And so as soon as he says that, it says that when they heard this, verse 28, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through their midst. But passing through their midst, he went away. And you think, wow, okay. So they, they just went from, let's marvel at his great words to let's kill him. Let's, let's take him out and, we'll, and then we'll drag him out of the town. We're going to throw him off of this precipice that the town is built on. And, and honestly, as I have been working on this passage this week, the, the big question is, what, what happened? How did they go from, this is a great guy, to let's kill him so quickly? And it's at first a little bit confusing. But I think it's confusing because we don't quite understand the, some of the mindset of somebody who's a, who's a first century Jew. And, and I think we can understand it by take a first century Drew and bring him to 21st century America and you know he would be probably very confused on why people might get really angry at somebody for wearing a Make America Great Again hat or why they would not understand why a year ago during the Super Bowl somebody wearing a Patriots shirt would have been attacked in South Philadelphia, <laughs> right? They, 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 would not, they wouldn't understand these things. But we know that, that those sorts of things are not just, it's not just fabric, but it's, it's speaking to what people believed, people's 
identities, to people's values, what, what's really de- near and dear to the heart. So if that is challenged, that there's this reaction of, of anger or, or rage, of, of wanting to, to hurt somebody. And, and it's the same thing with the national identity for Israel at this time. They were an oppressed people. They were being oppressed by people outside. And that had built up a lot of, a lot of anger of saying, you know, we're the persecuted people of God and we need to get rid of all the bad people that are invading us. And so for Jesus to even suggest that, that they, the Nazareth, are going to miss the boat and miss the Messiah and follow the pattern of their forefathers and rejecting the Messiah and that God might turn to, to outsiders, people that they hate, that just is too much. And so they, they turn to say, no, this guy, you know what, he's a false prophet. And the Old Testament in Deuteronomy tells people what to do with false prophets. They're to be executed. They're to be stoned to death. And so they follow that and they say, let's, let's drag him out and we'll put him to death because this guy isn't just a bad teacher. He's a, a dangerous teacher. And I think that today as well, the, the teaching of Jesus can sometimes foster this kind of anger and this kind of rejection. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus tells his disciples, he said, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so what Jesus is saying is this pattern of rejection by those close to you is going to follow Christians throughout history. And it's not that... that we're going out of our way to, to be offensive. But at first, people confront Christianity and they say, oh, it's such a nice religion. It's just so good for society and for communities. But then they confront, what is Christianity actually saying? What does the Bible actually say? And it becomes really offensive to, to human pride where it says that we're sinners. It, it says that Jesus is the only way, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. But by him. It says that our, our ceremonies and our good deeds aren't going to be able to get us into heaven. It's, it's saying that our, all of our best deeds are but filthy rags before God. And it, it's, it's saying that we have to make God the number one priority above everything else, that we have to love our enemies, we have to pray for those who hate us, we have to give sacrificially, we have to deny ourselves and we have to take up our cross daily to follow Christ. And we hear that and we say, okay, no, that can be, that's hard, that's offensive, that's difficult. And, and, and that's part of the reason that Christianity has consistently been persecuted, per- persecuted in the first century, persecuted by the Romans. As Christianity spread to pagan tribes in Europe, persecuted by, by s- tribes of Saxons, and uh, it was persecuted in the 20th century more than any other time in history. Even now, Christianity is being persecuted like it never has been. Uh, more Christians being killed. And, and, it, and Christians are being killed because people recognize that Christianity is offering an, an affront to what people hold dear to say, what is our priorities? What is actually true? And so maybe for some of you today, you're not at the place of wanting to take Christians out and throw them over cliffs. But you say, no, I, I actually am angry at Christianity. I'm angry at Christ. I'm, I'm angry at the, the Bible. And, and if that is where you are, then there's actually incredible good news in Scripture and, and what makes Scripture so different. Because 
so many human systems would say, who, who's angry? Who's rejecting Christ? Those are the people who are, we're going to leave on the outside. But, but what the Bible tells us and what the story of the line of the Bible holds forth is that, that God comes to save the people who are rejecting him. He comes to save the people who are hating him, who are turning away from him. He comes to save the people who are, are blind, the people who are deaf, the people who are rejecting him. And, and that's what the cross is ultimately about. Because three years after this rejection in Nazareth, Jesus is going to be hauled before the, the court of Israel, and he's going to be put on trial for blasphemy. And people are going to say, look, he's not just a good moral teacher. He's claiming far more than that, and we don't like it. We need to silence him. But in that moment, as he's condemned and dragged out to Golgotha to be nailed to the cross, Jesus could have passed through the crowd and left like he did here in Nazareth. But it, back in Nazareth, he knew his hour had not yet come. But at the, at the cross, he knew, yes, this is the hour. That is, this is the time for me to, to suffer and to, to die. And he did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for people who are rejecting him. He did it for people who you know, are taking their Bibles out and throwing them in the trash can. <laughs> he did it for, for people who, who are living their own way and not God's way. And that's exactly what we see in the, the book of Isaiah. Because if you were to turn to Isaiah 53, only a few chapters before what Jesus quotes about himself, listen to what it says about the work of Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew, up before him, sorry, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you see, predicted in Isaiah, the rejection that people are going to despise him. He's going to be a man of sorrow. And it says that, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's amazing that those kinds of words could be written 700 years before Jesus, describing his work, yet more beautifully than any other passage probably in, in Scripture. And what it shows is, is this pattern that's beginning at Nazareth, where he's going to be rejected, he's going to be despised. And it says that, that he did it for us, that we esteemed him not, that he was, he was stricken for, for our sake, that he came to save those who were rejecting him. And so as we confront that choice uh, that, that we were talking about, that are we going to accept or reject, <laughs> that the, the choice is clear, and, and because... What other Lord comes to save and die for the people who hated him and rejected him and calls them in his mercy? And what we see here in the, in the Lord's Supper is this picture of his work, that we see that he was rejected. He died. His, his blood was shed. He rose again. He gives life. 